Welcome to episode 58 of Major Revisions. My name is Jeff Atkins. I'm from Virginia Commonwealth University, and joining me tonight is John Walter from the University of Virginia. How are you, John? Great. That's my smooth, sexy radio voice. How do you like that? It's it's pretty good, man. I was impressed by it. <laughs> it it I will say it doesn't feel exactly like your normal voice, but it's very soothing. You don't think I'm smooth and silky the entire time? What are you talking about? I'm just, I'm just saying no, it. No, it's cool. It's got a little. It's, cool. it's got a little extra lilt to it that. Oh. You know, it, I, it stands I've out. often wondered, like, like, do you think that we need like professional radio counseling? Is that what we take our podcast to the next level? Um. I don't know. I like. All right. I mean. You, you and I have similar taste in music. Like we kind of dig the, you know, the DIY, the the punk kind of aesthetic, um, and I think that applies to podcasts too. I think if we were overproduced, then we wouldn't be authentic. That's true. I don't want to be overproduced. You know, I used to. I had a radio show for a, a year and a half in college, and um, we were definitely not overproduced. It was in the garage with Jeff and Eric, and. Uh, we had the worst time slot possible. We were on after LSD's funk show, and um, that's E L L I S D E E. That's called double entendre. And uh, he he would play from eight until God, like eleven o'clock. And so we had from eleven until one a.m. And uh, one of the features of the show was the six minutes of evil which was six songs by six different artists in under six minutes. And um, after like a year and a half, they got increasingly difficult to not repeat. But um, yeah, that's, about, that's my entire radio experience was Jeff, you know, in the garage with Jeff and Eric. And there are recordings of that out there if you feel compelled to go find it. Is, it, is, uh, this, so, is this the same Eric from the Fantasy Baseball League? Yes, yes. This is uh, Professor Eric Newsom at the University of uh, Central Missouri. Nice. So you can go look him up right now. He's a professor of media studies, and I'm sure he remembers this, and he would cringe out of it as well as me. <laughs> so, feel free to Google him, and then like just t- tweet him randomly, and he'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, he actually would be a really good... He actually studies like uh, a story basically like or some of his work like actual research focuses on the idea of story and different story mediums to tell that or to tell stories and like um you know kind of non-traditional media formats including like video games and you know uh, comic books and graphic novels and whatnot so like actually like aside from like uh the ericness there's also like this really incredibly interesting research thing and he wrote uh his first book was on slender man cool and how uh the slender man mythos um you know, came out of like this digital storytelling, like group communal storytelling uh, aspect. Um, really good book. I, I recommend anyone if they are interested in that, like different ways to tell stories, like communal stories, you know, and mythologies and meme cultures. Very, uh, it's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, so, so John, you and I, uh, we had a, a really, we had a solid plan, but uh, Grace is, uh, I think, still doing field work even though it's 9.30 at night, <laughs> so she couldn't join us. And so in the last five minutes, we have veered course uh, directly from what we originally planned, and we're going to be talking about uh, making scientific figures for your papers 
and we're going to be pulling a rough guide from a 2014 PLOS One paper, actually a no, PLOS computational biology paper called 10 Simple Rules for Better Figures, which is a, you know, it's a fine paper. It's a good paper. Um, I think we're just going to use it kind of the, as a rough guideline for a discussion and a jumping off point, because I don't think since we haven't planned anything that we'll go much past 20, 30 minutes on this at the absolute most. Definitely didn't read the paper, so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I yeah we'll we'll post this paper up in the notes. I think this is a good one uh to kind of give people um you know to work like students as like a like I said like as a jumping off point even to like, to kind of think about. So I guess we'll just go through we don't even have to go through all the rules in here but I think the rules will spur good discussion. Um cuz there, there's there's 10 rules. Basically there's like a rule given and then like an example for that and like a detailed description of of why that's a rule. Uh, so the first one is rule one, know your audience. John, what does that mean to you when I'm talking about a scientific figure? What does know your audience mean? Um, is, is that, is that more complicated than it sounds? No, it doesn't have to be. No, I don't think it is. I think it means, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it means, you know, know who's going to see this and, um, you know, what their, what their background is, what assumptions they're going to make, what things they're going to find, um, intuitive given, you know, their, uh, you know, closeness to your field and the common conventions that might be present. Um, and what things about your, um, you know, your figure, uh, the message that you're trying to convey, uh, that might be less familiar. All right, so I have a follow-up question for you then. Do you use the same figures that you put in a paper in a presentation? No. How do you change them? Um, I often make them simpler, um, and I often change their orientation. What do you mean? Uh, so uh, especially if I'm doing like a multi-panel figure, um, the a lot of times the print version is oriented so the long side is the the vertical axis or the y-axis um but presentation slides are shaped differently so i reformat them so they're oriented with the um long axis being the the horizontal axis and that just you know it just makes it easier to make the you know, the plot's bigger. Uh, a lot of times I do increase the, um, you know, magnification on the text too, to make it easier to read from a further distance. I think that, I think that's a good point. Cause you think of like papers, like figures for papers, like those are something somebody can sit in the comfort of their own home and just kind of mull over, right. For ad infinitum. But then in a presentation you have 30 seconds and you got to like bring that point home really quickly. Um, yeah, a lot of times I will cut out information or do something to highlight aspects of a graph or a plot and uh, use that as kind of a jumping off point too. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, is a good point. Like, you understand the format too, right, of how you're presenting something versus, you know, if it's paper versus uh, presentation versus even infographic or even like, you know, some other means that we're not thinking of. Yeah. Um, Sorry, we're totally... I, I just read ahead and we're totally like riffing off of rule three. Um, 
But we can. All right, so rule three: ad, uh, adapt to support the medium. Well, we cover that two for one. <laughs> okay, okay, rule two though is good. Um, I like this one. Uh, this came up in a conversation today. Uh, uh, identifying your message, right? Um, so I think it's really important to be very intentional about like the plots that you use because you know you can kind of go crazy in a paper, right? But even like in structuring a plot, um, like I think about. Um, uh, an example from uh, today I was working with with somebody and talking about was uh, was a series of box plots. I'm an evangelist for box plots in the first place. I like them because they kind of intuit, I think, what a lot of statistical test output are really kind of based on anyway, and they kind of show you distributions, but also can show you differences among and within groups. And so I was thinking about, like, you know, if you have, um, like, say you have something where it's, you have four different groups and you have two scenarios that you've tested them against, right? And um, you can group those as like all four groups on one side, you know, and group it by scenarios, right? So you have scenario one, group one, two, three, four, and you can have scenario two, group one, two, three, four. And so when you group it that way, right, you, the message is, I want you to look at the difference between the scenarios, mm -hmm. right? So whatever it is. So say maybe something's like a drought condition and the other one is um, uh, non-drought or control condition, right? So you can see the difference amongst that, you know. Conversely, you can also group by the group. So you can put group one, say the drought and the control, like scenario one and two next to each other. Group two, scenario one and two next to each other. In that case, right, what you're highlighting is the difference between the groups, mm -hmm. not as the scenario as a whole, right? So I think like even, you know, it's, it's important to identify what is the message that you want to convey in the plot. And, you know, that kind of that example, it's like, do you want me to focus on the scenario or do you want me to focus on the group? And I think this depends on like a, you know, there's other ways to think about this as well too. Like how do you even present the data that you want to present and what, you know, format uh, or even plot is necessary for that. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that, you know, that can, um, can play out with is, um, you know, if you have like a multi-panel figure, um, what axes mm -hmm. do you use? Do you standardize your axes across all of the different um, different panels, or do you use um, axes that are specific to each panel? Um, and a, you... and a, lot, a lot of times that depends on whether you want, you know, the visual comparison of, you know, sort of like the magnitude of um, a relationship or, you know, some effect to be clear um, when you're comparing, you know, panel A versus panel B versus panel C? Um, or do you kind of want those to, to a certain degree, kind of stand on their own as kind of different instances of some, you know, related phenomenon? Okay, so... I have another question for you related to that. How do you feel about dual Y axes? Um, I think that they can work well in certain cases. Um, and go on. So the cases that I'm thinking of are that the, you know, the pattern that, you know, for each thing has to be relatively um relatively simple right like you know if 
if you have a really complex pattern in each of those, um, you know, uh, variables separately, then, you know, trying to look at the two of them together is probably like an, an impossible task. See, I feel that in general, they're kind of manipulative and I feel uncomfortable with them. And I, I guess to clarify, if I didn't make it clear what I was talking about to everyone listening, uh, dual Y axes is like when you take, um, you have the same, a shared X axis, like say time. And then you have a Y on the left. That would be say something like, uh, I always think of this from like an ecosystem ecology perspective. So it's like, say maybe I have like the soil temperature um, on my y-axis and then I have another y-axis on the right that maybe is something like um, day length right so just you know how many hours of sunlight there are and maybe that's a, like a line graph like there are two line graphs and you know the idea would be to show you the pattern that day length coincides with you know increased uh, temperature of some kind um, but I think I don't you know, like if you work in R in particular, like R goes out of its way, particularly with like the ggplot setup, to make this almost virtually impossible to do. And the reason being is that you typically should just use them as two stacked panel graphs, and that tells the same thing, and it doesn't look like you're trying to manipulate the relationship in any way. Um, so I, the only out that I usually give is for hydrology papers that will put precipitation as a bar graph underneath like virtually everything they do in a time series. <laughs> and I feel like to me that's the one thing that I'm like yeah okay that's fine <laughs> but otherwise I tend to be like very like I don't know this kind of gets my hackles raised but I don't know if it's because because also like I think that we get to rule 10 get the right tool you know you and I even in the same software program use wildly different plotting mechanisms yeah um, I hate ggplot yeah I hate base R <laughs> 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 so <laughs> I, I won't use it it's not not gonna happen i the histogram function is the only thing and i only use that to check data and then i make you know the histograms in ggplot after that for papers so all right dual y-axis agree to disagree um adapt the figure to support the medium we already covered this doesn't matter where it goes Rule four. Cap Captions are not optional. You should have a caption. Always. What do you, do you have any, I mean, that feels pretty self-explanatory to me. The caption should detail what the hell is in the plot. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, not really. I guess the one thing I would add is, you know, also pay attention to the conventions of whatever um, you know, whatever medium you're using, whether that's a, um, a, uh, a, you know, a conference poster or presentation, you know, those are tougher to give lengthy captions. If you're doing it in a paper, you might want to have a really lengthy caption that's very descriptive. Um, cause that doesn't, you know, you're not going to be giving that talk or standing next to that poster to explain um, something. And a lot of people just, you know, read abstract, you know, last sentence of 
uh, or last paragraph of the introduction where the research questions or hypotheses usually go, and then look at the figures. Um, and that's a really you know quick way to um, get an intro to a, a figure. And um, you know I don't know how much I love that, but that's reality. And as an author, you want to do your best to um, be accommodating to your readers. Totally, hundred percent agree. Uh, rule five: Do not trust the defaults. Uh, so I think this is really just thinking about like if you you know whatever you use to plot. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of the people we work with primarily use R, but we also work with people who use MATLAB or Excel or you know Stata or Sigma Plot. Um, just don't do the thing that it comes with, right? Like read the the manual, read the text, like learn how to make that plot your own. Um, you know, in whatever way, like, I think that's, you know, one of the, you know, this is one of the few real strong creative outlets that we get as scientists. And I think, you know, find the, the way to present plots that is kind of your style, right? Yeah. That's going to be something that's going to live on in infamy and, you know, put your imprint on it. Yeah. And, you know, let me be clear that the reason that I use base R for everything is that I invested in learning how to manipulate all of the graphics parameters to, you know, a format that I'm happy with. And I don't know how to do that in ggplot. And I don't really feel compelled to learn that. So I, you know, I know that a lot of people find ggplot um, easier and, and helpful, but um, yeah, I mean, I already know base R and, you know, it, the, the two, um, work pretty awfully differently, surprisingly, since they're both in the same language. I think what we should do is we should both put up, um, one plot from one of our papers that is either published or, um, ready to go in review are ready to be submitted so it has to be a paper in, in the process and we should let the people vote on which figure they like better which figure they like better all right are we gonna think about it are we gonna tweet this poll we'll tweet this poll you know how i still haven't tallied all the march mammal madness things and it's fucking may so you know <laughs> <laughs> let's see how this goes chris, chris. also I, also, I'm not sure I'm supposed to say the word fuck. I think Bill ruined that for me. <laughs> that was that was banter for episode, the original of episode 58 that will become episode 59. We'll see when we come up with that. Yeah, so we're going to do that. Base R versus GG plot. All right. Which one, which one do you like better? Um, all right, so... All right, this is a big one for me, but using color effectively. Um, I think the first thing, and this is you know something I harp on a lot with um, reviews is to, to, to be aware uh, of two primary things. One, the first of, of being that, um, you know, color impairment or visual impairment is an issue. Um, you know, it affects, you know, 10 to 15% of the population and you can avoid that. You know, there's, there's software programs that you can actually put on your computer that'll make your monitor like mimic that impairment so you can see what it looks like but like really at a base level just don't use red and green together and you're fine that takes care of like 99 percent of things um the 
the other aspect of this is think about like if you're doing something that requires color ramps like color ramp being like a, a large palette that shows like differences moving from like hot to cold or something like a interpolated color palette is um if you use the rainbow palette that's like the standard in matlab but also like it exists in r and some other stuff like that has a problem of accentuating you know middle values and so it doesn't make the extremes look very good like it just it doesn't work really well um so it's you know something to think about like how color is actually used and like there's really easy guides online for that it takes very little effort to invest a little bit of time into making yourself much better at that um you know the thing that i use a lot now is a palette called veritas uh, v-i-r-i-d-i-s that is you know 100 percent color safe uh, color brewer has a web a web uh, interface that you can look at that you can uh you know use colors for like discrete values and color ramps and everything else and get something that'll spit out um you know what you can do with color like don't be lazy <laughs> really it's all the information is out there yeah and, and don't do something you know and there is an r color brewer package that um puts a lot of the um different color palettes right at your fingertips and is is really easy um and, and i use that in a lot of my figures color brewer is really good there are also some other creative outlets as well uh karthik ram has a great one up that uses palettes pulled from wes anderson films uh, it's a package called Wes Anderson. Uh, uh, there's one that pulls scenes from Game of Thrones that just came out this week. Um, I myself have one under development for something I can't talk about yet, but will be out in hopefully the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, there's, uh, I, like, I'm really invested in this. I like color and I like art and I think it's fascinating. And so also, just, you know, have fun with it. But try to be aware that, you know, you don't have to make things that, 15% of the people in the world can't see, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. Uh, rule seven, I feel like we've, we've uh, talked about a little bit, and this is uh, don't mislead the reader. So I think, like, the, the classic example that you see of this is, like, why you don't use pie charts. Mm. Because a pie chart... The actual difference in a pie chart, right? Like if you have like, you know, the little pie pieces is not the area of the pies. It's the outer circumference or that outer, I guess that's an arc, right? Is that what that's called? Like the outer edge piece of a circle? Yeah, the, the arc length. Like, yeah, the arc length is the actual thing that is the length based on the percentage of that pie. Um, and so like the areas like tend to obscure extreme values, either really large or really small and make pie charts appear differently. Like your brain perceives them differently than the data that are actually there. And so it makes inference from that, um, a little bit frustrating. So that's kind of why the general thing is like, just avoid pie charts as best you can. Um, and try to rethink how to show that data um, because it, it is inherently kind of a manipulative data format. Another thing is I think using those double Y axes, right? Um, where you can manipulate patterns based on changing the range of a Y axis to like, illustrate something instead of just showing them as they are, right? So 
you know, kind of be aware of, of your figures. Another thing being, like, if you have a multi-panel figure, like John was saying, try to normalize the axes so they show the same thing across all the figures. But just kind of be aware that, you know, certain, uh, certain things show different relationships maybe than what you think they do. Um, so rule eight is avoid chart junk. And I think this one's kind of a straightforward one. Uh, the example they show here is they have like a, what almost looks like a spaghetti graph, right? Like a bunch of lines on top of each other. Instead, you know, like a better way to present that is like stacked, like different line graphs instead of showing like 10 lines on top of each other, like maybe give each one their own kind of plot. Um, also, just think about how you use titles, think about how you use legends, and, you know, kind of arrange those in a way that is easy on the reader, right? Like your goal as the author is to make the information as accessible as possible so people can follow your story. John, do you have a, a typical go-to as far as like when you're doing plots, as far as titles, legends, and whatnot, how you arrange the junk in your chart? Um... Well, one thing that's often helpful is that if you have, you know, common axes across all of your different plots, um, you know, maybe don't label every single one, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, use like, you know, a bigger label in, um, in the margin, um, or something like that you know it kind of tends to simplify the plot um and you know helps to convey that you know oh you know all of these um you know plots are or all these panels are showing the same units um and and that you know that's just one one technique that i that i use a lot rule nine is talking about message trumps beauty and i think this is more talking about simplicity but I guess I, I have a question for you is how do you figure out the best plot for a set of data? Well, a lot of times it's kind of based on how, you know, conventionally that kind of information is plotted, right? Like, you know, scientists are often creatures of habit. And so if, if we're used to seeing um, a particular type of data in a particular way, then unless you have a really good reason um, to you know to not um, you know to to change things up, you know maybe you know resulting to that default is uh, actually a good communication tool, um, and and sometimes that can actually come up against some of these other rules um, in a, a um, recently submitted paper that I'm a co-author on, uh, you know, we have a bunch of wave plots in there and um, a standard way of plotting, uh, you know, wavelet power spectra and related quantities uses a, not like a standard rainbow, but it's a very rainbow-like color ramp that you know includes um, both reds and, and green hues that are, that are difficult to um, distinguish for a colorblind person and and we played around a lot with um, more colorblind friendly palettes and um, 
you know, got feedback from, you know, other, other people, um, who weren't, uh, who were familiar with wavelets, but weren't associated with this, um, particular manuscript. And, um, based on, you know, based on that experience and feedback, we ended up keeping the, the standard, um, rainbow like color ramp, um, just because that's, that's a standard for these types of plots. And it was jarring for people um, to see it differently. And they had to think a lot harder about what the data were showing. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are conventions that way, like in some respects, like if you read climate literature, right, like the red to blue color ramp is used for temperature a lot because it just it makes sense. You know, red is warmer, blue is colder. Um, you see that color ramp attached to, you know, moisture values typically as well. It's red being drier, blue being wetter. Um, the, uh, you know, it, we use a lot of the green to brown, uh, representing, you know, greenness versus uh, brownness, right? Like in the environment, like that, you know, that becomes kind of a convention as well. And, you know, if that's, you know, you can play around with colors or conventions with that, but if they don't, they kind of move outside of, like you said, accepted norms, they can be kind of jarring and kind of be, you know, differential. Um, yeah, and, and there are, like, just some data that, you know, lend themselves to, to different style of, of plots as well. Like, I guess, like, the one I think about is, like, if you were to show, if you have to show a distribution of something, do you have, like, a go-to for that? Because I've become very, I've become very fond of ridge plots a lot lately, which really are just kind of, like, stacked PDFs, basically. Um, but they, they mimic that like Joy Division album cover from like the 80s. And so that makes me really happy. And that's why like the original thing in R was even called GG Joy before it was changed to GG Ridges. Mm. Um, because I guess like some computer pedantics didn't listen to music <laughs> and didn't get the joke. But um, do you have anything like any weird kind of plots or any kind of weird things that you are particularly fond of or recommend? Um. Well, wavelet plots, because I do a lot of time series analysis and like thinking about things in the frequency domain. And um, so that's, you know, that's kind of like a, a standard thing that I use to, um, you know, e even just kind of explore, uh, explore data. Um, I make a lot of histograms, uh, even though they're, those are a little bit, um, you know, subject to you know your choice of the number of bins or um you know which uh which bins to use but um they're still are super easy to produce and um a very you know useful um kind of like first cut look at some of your data um and yeah i mean i i just i just don't think that there's ever a um a case where you can really overdo it when it comes to you know just plotting your data um and uh you know and, and looking at it um well okay maybe you can maybe they're okay i'll, I'll take that back <laughs> i will take that back because um you know if you if you go you know, let's imagine you have a, you know, a data set of, uh, you know, 15 paired measurements and, you know, 
you don't really know for certain going into it. You don't have strong hypotheses about how those are related to one another. You know, if you just make, you know, pairwise, um, you know, by, you know, by plots of all those 15 variables and, you know, then actually run correlation tests on the ones that look like there's something there, that's, uh, you know, there's a little bit of cherry picking and some serious uh, researcher degrees of freedom going on there. Um, that's not really good statistical practice, but, um, you know, there are a lot of ways to, you know, understand the distributions of your data, um, you know, understand, uh, you know, temporal dynamics, understand spatial variability in, you know, kind of intuitive and, um, more, uh, you know, kind of qualitative ways that, um, depending on your question, obviously, but, you know, are, are maybe un less likely, to, they're more likely to benefit you in choosing the right statistical tests than they are to, um, you know, bias you in, in terms of, um, you know, selecting tests that are likely to be um, significant. So rule ten is rule ten is choosing the, the right tool, which I think we use the same tool, just different versions of that tool in R. Um, so I don't really know what to add to that, other than my GG plot is going to crush your base plot when it comes to the Twitter poll. But um, yeah, fuck it, dude. If it works for you, graph in what you work in, like it's fine. Just make it look good and follow the other rules. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't care what you use. <laughs> like whatever. Um, I, I do have a final, final two part question for you, John, um, your favorite type of plot, and it can be a wavelet plot if it is, and then a type of plot that you don't like at all, or just avoid using. Hmm. Um, I don't like contour plots. You know, I I find them oftentimes to be difficult to interpret. Um, not, I, I, I don't mean like the, you know, contour represent, representations of topography, um, but, you know, contour representations of, um, you know, what, oh, one variable as a, a function of, of two other ones. Um, yeah, you have a Z variable mapped over X, Y space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, for, for whatever reason, I, I don't know if other people feel this way too. Um, I just find them difficult to interpret. They're not very intuitive to me unless the pattern is very, very obvious. Um, and I find it a lot more intuitive uh, when you have color available to you. Um, or even if you don't have color, it can just be in grayscale um, to do more of like a, a surface plot um, with a, you know, a gradient of, um, you know, color or, you know, brightness or, you know, whatever. I'm probably not using the correct terms for color. That's fine. Uh, do you mean like a heat map kind of color? Yeah, like, like a heat map. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I like heat maps a lot. I use those some. 
Um, so what do you, what is your favorite kind of plot then? No, I mean I think it's a heat map. I mean a wavelet plot is is a kind of heat map. So okay. Uh, uh, so it's interesting. You have like the the two opposite ends of the spectrum are your favorite and uh, least favorite. Well, I mean I, it's you know it's it's a common thing to have you know a z variable um, as a function of an x and y variable and you know one way of plotting that i you know find really intuitive generally and one i find really unintuitive um so in some in some ways i guess it's kind of natural to um you know feel a little bit polarized along those lines see because like 3d surface maps i can it really depends on the plot to me like those can be really cool and they can be really difficult i think to to think about too i, I don't know i kind of like those but i kind of don't I, I have mixed reactions to it yeah what, what about you, do you what's your favorite my my favorite one i do like ridge plots a lot because i like seeing distributions of data and i like you know those ridge style plots that can show you those kind of over space and um my two least favorite uh stacked area graphs I just had a really difficult time initially understanding, and I kind of understand them now, I think, you know, more. But, like, I've just always had a difficult time working with those. Like, if you have multiple values kind of, like, over time, you know, like those, it, it, it messes with my head trying to figure out, like, because it's really hard to parse out the exact values for any given variable at any time, and I don't like that. And I'm not a real fan of violin plots. They might sort of fall under like one of my earlier comments of like if people are used to seeing a certain type of data a certain way, then you know sometimes plotting in a different way can be distracting. And um, but I mean, if there's a better way, we shouldn't we shouldn't just go default to like whatever the old way was. Yeah. Like, I think, like, I'm, I I really like, you've seen Wind Roses, right? Yep. Yep. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So Wind Roses are those plots that are, like, they represent 360 degrees, and they're kind of like these, they show, they're usually used in, like, climate stuff and atmospheric science to show, like, direction of wind. So, nope. like, you know, you, yeah, it's like the, the it radiates out from the center uh, and it goes from zero to 360 degrees. And like, if you have most of the wind comes from the West, then a lot of the, the plot tends towards, you know, the 270 degree mark. Right. And so it looks kind of like a rose and that's why it's called that. But I think like, that's a really cool kind of plot that also looks like a cyclical plot too. Right. That shows distribution in space, but it's kind of interesting, but it's also like an out of the box thing. If you use it for literally anything, that's not wind. <laughs> um, that is a cool plot. I like those. So that was that was kind of a cool one. I don't know. Just don't use pie graphs, and everything else is fine. <laughs> don't, for the love of God, don't use three dimensional pie charts oh or exploded pie charts. That's the maybe that's the worst. We can all agree those are terrible. I don't even yeah. I don't even know what they mean. <laughs> So that's been plots with Jeff and John. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Thank you all for listening. Remember, you can download the podcast um, via our website. You can also get us via Google Play uh, through iTunes. Uh, you can also find us on Stitcher and Spotify. You can visit us on the internet at majorrevisionshow.com or majorrevisionspodcast.com. We own both because we are classy AF. Uh, and also visit us on Twitter at major underscore revisions, which is also our Instagram, which I don't know if we've posted anything in a while, but we'll get to that. Um, with that, thank you all for listening. Uh, check us hopefully in the next couple weeks where we are going to do another installment of revisiting classic papers in ecology, where we are talking Sarah Hobie's excellent paper on nutrient recycling in ecosystems. And it's pretty baller and I'm excited about it. So with that, good night.